Welcome to episode 18 of the Make Me Watch It podcast. The podcast where, usually, you the listeners tell me which movie I should be watching next. I say usually because we do make exceptions in special cases, such as those episodes in which we have a co-host or a, a guest on the podcast, like this week. So, welcome aboard the first guest on this series, but a voice that'll be familiar to those who've listened to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels podcast series or any of his own many, many podcast series, Mr. John M. Wilson. Hello. Hello. Not many anymore, but but I guess there have been a lot over the years. Yeah, there's no shortage of an archive of John M. Wilson podcasts <laughs> out there. I keep starting them, but right now, I, well, I have one that's going and another one that I'm slowly cooking in the background that I'm waiting to start releasing a little bit down the road, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. Yeah, we will definitely get to yours. I don't know that you've done a lot of movie podcasts previously. Most of the ones I've heard from you are all comic book related. The only movie podcasts I've done have been as part of some of those other projects. So I've done like um, a Star Wars commentary. Uh, I did a, I did a Star Wars com a holiday special commentary. And I believe I did a Superman the Movie uh, special edition commentary with uh, Josh and Josh Bertoni and Don Grant once upon a time. But yeah, not a lot of movies, not a lot of movie podcasts. Uh, no, you did do one recently, though. So one of John's current projects, which I guess we should get to now, is Make Ours Marvel. Yay! So yeah, there um, we are talking about old Marvel comics, but also we wanted to talk about Marvel, you know, in other media and stuff that's not comics. And we recently, as of this recording, released discussion specials for each of the two Marvel films that have come out in recent weeks, which are Avengers Infinity War and Deadpool 2. And we'll do one for Ant-Man and the Wasp and continue from there. We're also planning on doing some go back and get Marvel films from the vault. And so things like the Fantastic Four film from a few years ago. And we, we, we may even, you know, once we have some Captain America discussion on our belt, we may even go as far back as getting his serial from the 40s, which I've never seen. So that'll be fun. I've seen just the, the first chapter of it. It is eligible for this podcast. So I, I will warn you, part of the reason I stopped after the first chapter is it didn't feel like it was written as a Captain America serial. It felt like it was written as a sequel to the Green Hornet serial, but was sold to a company that didn't have the rights to Green Hornet. So. Interesting. Yeah, he he's uh he's just a dude who works at a newspaper with a costume. <laughs> and, and he's in the United States while World War II is going on overseas. Of course he is. Well, I, I've found that going back and watching those old serials is always a crapshoot. I mean, you can find some really good stuff. I watched the first episode of the Shazam serial first two episodes of that was actually really impressed by it and the batman serial it's batman all right but the story's kind of crap so you know it's i like the superman serials if i watch them as serials i can't just watch them at a go but i like them as chapters yeah and the second one i i podcast about before in the uh, silver screen superman podcast that i was doing a few years ago for the 75th anniversary of superman I was actually more impressed with the second one, 
partly because it turns out that the one element of Superman 3 that I thought was original was stolen straight from there with the fake kryptonite that has the wrong effect on Superman Ah. that was given to him by a minion of the villain pretending to be a military officer giving him an award in some small Midwest town. Oh, wow, that's right. Yeah, it was all there as well as, you know, in the time when they thought Superman was dead, Jimmy went to Perry and said, I kind of have an idea I should write this story. I've figured out that Clark Kent is Superman. And now that he's dead, it's a story worth telling. But I don't know if I should spoil that secret. And Perry's response was, well, yeah, of course he's Superman. We've all figured it out. We were just humoring him. Go ahead. (laughs) So I, I just like the fact that the attitude is, nobody at the Daily Planet's an idiot. They've all figured out that Clark Kent is Superman. But, you know, pretending that they don't know helps him do the job that they all want him to keep doing, so they're just going to run with it. I love it. I love it. It's been a while since I've seen that, so I forgot about those beats. And I, I haven't seen the other Superman films enough to have associated them with... Because um, I... Well, yeah, I guess it's, it, it's relevant, because we're going to talk about a Superman movie. I didn't grow up watching the Superman movies. My family just wasn't Superman fans, and... I didn't really get into Superman until I was an adult. So although I've seen all of the original series of Superman films, the fourth one I've only seen once. The third one I've only seen once as an adult and a couple times as a kid. And then I've seen the first two a few times. But so those are not as ingrained in my memory and in my uh, in my nostalgia as with a lot of other fans. Yeah. And for me... Superman 3 was my first live-action exposure to Superman. Okay. My exposure to Superman as a child went from Super Friends to Superman 3. And I I loved it as a child. I do not love it as an adult. But what got me through it as a child was that even in number 3, which I think had the weakest script of the four, which may be contentious now with people for remembering them as they were released in theaters, I think 3 had the weakest script but the fact that Christopher Reeve was so perfectly cast still shines through. And that's a lot of what drives it for me. Gotcha. It's not the best film. The fact that it, the fact that it has a, a Luthor imitation, I think, is a big strike against it. Because it's obviously Lex Luthor, but they didn't get Lex Luthor. And that's the one where Lois Lane appears for like 30 seconds, then not again for the rest of the film, right? She's got two scenes that were filmed in one day. She spoke out against the Salkinds for firing Richard Donner partway through Superman 2 just because they were afraid he was going to ask for more money even though he hadn't done so. So to punish her, they held on to her option so that she was tied up and not available to film anything while Superman 3 was going on. But yeah, she's got a 30-second scene at the beginning where she's going to go to Bermuda for a vacation. And then a 30-second scene at the end where she's back and blew the lid off some big story when she was there, ostensibly on vacation. Hmm. So Margot Kidder filmed in a day but was tied up for months. And I think if you rewatch them, the commentaries are very informative on those. I actually have the least respect for Superman 3 of those four Chris Reeve ones. Superman 3's biggest problem is not that they couldn't make the movie that they wanted to make, it's that the movie they wanted to make was not a Superman movie. The original plan was for Richard Pryor's character to actually be an artificial intelligence that was Brainiac, and Robert Vaughn's character was going to be Lex Luthor, and they were going to create Bizarro in the course of it, but then they hired Richard Pryor as 
the villain and said, oh, no, well, you can't hide him under the makeup or just make him an, e an AI. So he became the idiot savant programmer. They couldn't get Gene Hackman back, so they got Robert Vaughn in a character that you know, was basically a, a search and replace on the names to change him from Lex Luthor to someone else. Mm -hmm. You're right. It's so obviously Lex Luthor. And then instead of Bizarro, they had the evil Superman fight. To me, I think I would have enjoyed that much more because Richard Pryor kind of became the star and Superman is almost sidelined. I think it would have been a better film had they not pretended it was a Superman movie and had Richard Pryor's character replaced with Eel O'Brien made it a Plastic Man movie so you can have a little bit of a goofiness with the crime and just have a guest star Superman to start spitting off and build to a Justice League because, you know, it's not a bad idea to have a bunch of solo movies feeding into a Justice League film. It's not the only way to do things, though. No, it's not. But it's not a bad idea. It's funny because we have this, um, this, this brand new idea in film. I mean, the idea is 10 years old of having multiple franchises that then cross over and interact and interlace. And it's been done by one company with rousing success. And so another company wants to do something similar. The automatic judgment is that they should do it the same way. Mm -hmm. And I strongly disagree with that because I think that there are lots of ways of doing a shared franchise and a shared universe of films the I think part of the problem is that the kind of Superman movie that got made to start the DCEU is not the kind of Superman movie that I think most people were looking for. Yeah. And so that jaded a lot of the expectations and the responses to the, to the entire effort as a whole. Now, is there any reason not to make an introspective humanistic film that explores what it means to be a superpowered human in the midst of a, of a modern post 9-11 jaded humanity i don't think there's any reason not to do that but it's not the kind of film that people were expecting yeah i would say that's fair and that wasn't even the first time that dc tried launching an extended universe their <laughs> original plan was to do that with the green lantern film starring ryan reynolds no actually i should back it up their original plan was to do that with a green lantern film starring jack black and that announcement met with a response that made them think, ah, maybe Jack Black is not the way to go for Green Lantern. So believe it or not, the Ryan Reynolds movie was a step up from the plan that the producers had in mind the first time. Yeah, one of the, uh, one of the things I tell people is that, you know, you, you make Iron Man, you don't know that it's going to be a success. Every movie that mm -hmm. everyone ever makes, with a few exceptions, I'm sure, they they want it to be successful. They want it to be a hit. Are they all? No, there are very, very few percentage-wise hits out there. But Iron Man could just as easily have landed the same way Green Lantern did. You know, from a, we haven't released this yet, we're just making a film, going to put it out there and see what it does. They don't know what it's going to mm -hmm. happen. It could have landed the same way Green Lantern did, and it could have been a big flop. And then the scene at the end with Nick Fury saying it was going to be the Avengers is going to be like this unresolved thing forever. But no, Iron Man was a resounding success. Yeah. And just to be fair, I would say that Iron Man launching the Avengers was the first time that a studio went into things with the intention of building an entire franchise. When Avia Rad bought Marvel in the late 90s to prevent his toy company from going bankrupt, because Marvel was going down and they were bringing his toy company with it. He felt, no, we need to merchandise. We need to get these guys on screen. 
part of the reason Marvel could do the Avengers when the time came that they felt comfortable producing their own films through Marvel Studios was because of Rad outright refused to sell the rights to Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America separately because he wanted to see the Avengers on screen and felt they were the core. So he'd sell all the X-Men to one person, he'd sell all the Spider-Man rights to another entity, but he was deliberately keeping the Avengers together. And while there were studios that had interest in one of the three, nobody wanted to buy all three to take the risk on just one of them. So that's why they still had sort of those cards in their hand when the time came. It's the kind of move that I can see people arguing with and questioning and like telling him he's making a mistake. But boy, did it pay off. Yeah, I don't think anyone would ever pretend it wasn't a huge risk. And launching a movie studio with something on the scope of Iron Man is just unheard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the possible exception of DreamWorks launching with, I think it was in plain sight with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. But that was a little bit different in that it was you know, SKG, Spielberg, Katzenberg, and and Geffen were all established filmmakers who were just making their own production company, but they knew how to produce movies and had all been doing it for years. That was just the first time they did it together. Right. Even Pixar, you know, people point to Toy Story as Pixar's first big hit. Well, that was their first feature film. They had some very successful short films prior to that. I mean, if you go back to the 1930s, we've got what I think is the first true shared universe in the Universal Monster Films. But when they started making them, they had no intentions of making them a shared universe. They were 10 to 12 movies in when they were saying, okay, our our horror franchises are starting to to peter out. We've got our Invisible Mans, our Frankenstein, our Dracula, our Werewolf. How do we make more money off these when the audiences are losing interest? And they decided, well, hey, what if they meet each other? And that's where Frankenstein meets the Wolfman came from. And that basically doubled the lifetime of the Universal Monster films. So I think that was the first shared universe, but making it a shared universe was very much an afterthought halfway through the process. Mm -hmm. It's not like the Marvel universe or now the DC Extended Universe where they came in saying, this is the way we're going to do it. I even remember uh, Jeff Johns in his role at Warner Brothers announcing the week before the Avengers came out that At the time, Warner Brothers had no plans for a Justice League movie because their characters were too big and too iconic and they couldn't share it. Each of their characters needed the entire film to themselves. There just wasn't room for multiple characters. And then Avengers came out and smashed all sorts of box office records. And a week later, the Monday after Avengers came out, they said, okay, you know what? We are fast-tracking the Justice League. Now, that we should actually explicitly state the movie that we're officially here to discuss is Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. I don't think we have actually brought that up so far. Well, it's it, it's on their feed. It's on their player. <laughs> so Yeah. Hopefully hopefully you do what we were talking about today and are just like wondering. Yeah, and some of that is because I think in the course of this conversation we are going to be talking about all five films that they've released thus far in the series. So This is the movie, though, that came out on March 25th, 2016. Originally slated for 2015, they pushed it back to really make it the movie that they wanted it to be. You know, spend a little more time and money on the visual effects, that kind of thing. And this followed from Man of Steel. So up to this point, 
this was the second movie in their franchise, and we had Batman and Superman together on the big screen for the first time ever. I mean, this is an event that a lot of fans have been waiting for for essentially their entire lives. I mean, I grew up with Super Friends. These characters existed decades before I did. I mean, these these characters are older than my parents. They're clearly older than me. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's I'm sure for a lot of listeners, it's older than your grandparents because we're in the like we're in the 80s now for how old these guys are, about 80 years. I think 79 for Batman, 80 for Superman this year. Yeah, it's uh, 2018. Yeah. So, you know, we'd seen them together in cartoons through the the Super Friends and the Justice League and those various incarnations with the the Ted Knight narrated voiceovers. But the closest we'd seen to having them together on the big screen, uh, aside from a Justice League pilot that almost made it to TV but failed, uh, the closest we came to having them on screen together in theaters was probably Batman and Robin from 1997, where Batman says, this is why Superman works alone. I think just acknowledging that Superman exists is the closest that had come. Right. And I think, like you're saying, part of the reason I had the reaction to this film that I did is because the kind of film I hoped their first meeting would be is not the kind of film Zack Snyder chose to make. Now, we'll get into the nitty-gritties and everything, but just kind of in in general statements, is that because of storytelling beats like their animosity, or because of storytelling style like the kind of story that Zack Snyder told? It's a bit of a combination. Okay. I will give Snyder credit. He's not one of my favorite directors, but a lot of that is because I... I am more concerned with story and those beats than with visuals. And Zack Snyder is a very visual director. One thing that I cannot deny is that if you take, you know, a minute worth of film that I've never seen before and don't immediately recognize and show it to me, I can tell you whether or not that's a Zack Snyder film. As a director, he does have a very individual and personalized style. So I have to respect him for that. A voice. Yeah. And it does go to, you know, a lot of the visuals. There's a a couple moments in here where you get that great visual of Superman sort of hovering over the ground, which is a nice visual, but it grates on me here because of the story moments when he chose to give us those visuals. Right? We see a family on the roof of their home during a flood. They painted Superman's logo on the roof of their house. And a woman gets up and she's reaching in the sky. The camera pans around and Superman's floating above them. I don't want him floating above them there. I want him taking action. When he's showing up for the congressional hearings, again, they say, oh, he's here. You look up and he's hovering above, keeping himself apart and above them. And I, I, I like the visual in certain contexts. You know, hovering above Lex Luthor when he's confronting him, that works because hovering above in the foreground, sort of, when he's hovering that close where he can be clearly seen, that's a move that, it's a choice that intimidates. When he's confronting Lex Luthor, intimidating makes sense. You know, when he's confronting Batman because that they are in conflict in this, doing that would make sense. Doing that when he's trying to gain trust or he's there to save people, I don't want to see Superman hovering above the people, above the flood. I want him right there in it, possibly, like, 
you know, not surprise them, not shock them, get in there and get them to, to safety as quickly as he can. And that's not what was happening. So thinking about the story, do we assume that he did go in and save them? See, that's part of it is there. This entire story is constructed about who decides who lives and who dies. And they keep saying Superman is making these choices. And the ambiguity in the visuals is showing him right there by people who need to be saved, but we don't see him in the act of saving them. The only thing in this movie that I see just a few moments that seem to generate any sort of emotional response from Superman, there are moments with Lois, either when she's threatened or when they're alone and they're expressing their love. And then there's the frustration after the explosion in the Senate hearing. There's very little else that, that seems to get the Superman to respond. I guess my question was, we don't see him say the people on the, um, on the roof. And I understand what you're saying by you want to see that happen because you, when, you, when you go to see a Superman film, perhaps one of the strong desires is that he is going to, you know, zip in and save people and rescue them and fly away. They're going to be, thank you, Superman, so much. And, all you know, the, the kinds of things mm -hmm. that, you know, we tend to associate with the with the character so my i guess my question is do you think it's safe to assume that in the uh fictional world of this film after the camera turns off and the cameraman walks away superman does actually swoop down and save those guys yeah i've been assuming that so they, they pay lip service to the ambiguity would be nice if they they showed it but if he doesn't save them then i would really really question whether or not this character actually deserves to be called superman <laughs> i agree so i i think that you know i think it's unquestionable that he saves them like obviously yes superman saved the people on the roof so then it becomes a question of okay well what else is happening in the shot then what else is happening in the film that snyder is trying to communicate through the fact that he we actually see him you know that humanity is always seeing Superman from a distance in the shots that were given. Almost without mm -hmm. fail. The, the, or actually, there are very few specific exceptions. No one in this film sees Superman up close. He is separated from them. And I mm -hmm. think that goes to the story that Zack Snyder is telling and using his visuals to reinforce the themes. And one of the themes mm -hmm. in this film is that Superman feels very separated from humanity. Mm -hmm. And so we get the visual of he's saving these people. Yes, he's going to swoop down and save them. But whenever they're in trouble and they look up, we see Superman and they don't see a good view of him. And I think that that is a visual reinforcement of the theme. One, Because like you said, the question of what, who, who gets to make these decisions who gets to uh, choose who lives and who dies. That is Superman's major quandary that he's trying to wrestle with in this film, you know, cause he goes to Nairobi and he saves Lois Lane and he gets home to hear all these stories about how he destroyed stuff, how he burned things down, how he destroyed all these people, these villages and the, and the, and the, all these lies that I believe her name is Kahina is telling in front of the hearings. Mm -hmm. And then these lies are then spurring hum the, hum the human culture of the states and possibly other countries to question whether or not he should even be doing these things. 
I think we do see emotional responses from him watching the films, wondering what the heck is going on in this world that I'm trying to you know live in and trying to do good things in. And now they don't even know if I should exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see some of that. And part of this could be with the perceptions, because like you said, this is following from Man of Steel. I rewatched this yesterday in preparation for the podcast. It's the third time I've seen it. And it's the first time that I didn't watch Man of Steel within 48 hours of seeing it. Mm -hmm. So this is the, the most separate. It's also the first time I watched the Ultimate Edition. Oh, this is the first time you watched the Ultimate Edition? Yeah. The okay. 182 minute runtime. Because, you know, the first time I saw this was theatrical release. The second time I saw it was with my fiance in preparation for Wonder Woman and Justice League. And just because of the time we had, the two and a half hour cut made more sense than the three hour cut. And that helped a bit because I realized a lot of my issues with this are colored by issues that are more pronounced in Man of Steel that are not explicitly contradicted here. I mean, you said it's unquestionable that Superman saved the people on the roof. I want to believe that too. But if you know Superman only from Man of Steel and this film, I think you would question that. Why? Because of what Zack Snyder has chosen to show. Like We've seen Superman save people. The, the oil rig sequence in Man of Steel was great. Right. It's two minutes, but it was great. And when you get to the end, we have a, a, a problem in there that we see less of here, but there's still elements of it, is that when Superman and Batman are in the throes of battle, they are not necessarily concerning themselves with the amount of collateral damage that's being caused. That's the typical trope, yeah. It is, but I'm I'm trying to avoid comparing this to the Marvel movies because it's not really fair. If anything... The success of the Marvel movies has hampered what they could do with this because you don't want to do it the same way. Everyone's just going to say you're copying it. I personally feel that giving each character their own movie to develop them as an individual character and then bringing them together is the better approach to building an ensemble cast like this because that just gives you more time to spend on plot events when you do bring them together because the characters are established. But if you've got someone who's done that as successfully as Marvel and you're trying to do it for DC, you want to do it a different way so you're not just copying. You want to find a different solution. Right, and it's different solutions for different problems because Marvel is presenting a, a shared universe of a bunch of characters that are not household names. Um, Marvel yeah. is introducing Iron Man to the world at large. Now... In 2007, 1% of America knew who Iron Man was. If that. If that. <laughs> I, I would say Iron Man, Iron Man was well known to those who read Marvel comics. Right, right. Which is, you know, half a million people. So then, you know, they, they tell their story about Iron Man, Iron Man 2, you get Captain America. Captain America, I think they had the most leeway with because I think of all of those characters, Captain America might be the most well-known, but still isn't that well-known by the average person. Yeah, I would say at that point, he, I would put him, in terms of the rights that, or the characters Marvel had the rights to, Captain America is probably second to the Hulk. Now, that may mean my perception as a Canadian, 
it's possible that Captain America has pervaded the mass culture in America more than he has in other countries. But I know growing up as a child, I was always aware of the Hulk between the Bill Bixby series and then the animated series that launched just before my second or third birthday that I have vague recollections of watching. And they right. did have that with the Incredible Hulk, the film with Ed Norton. And so with the Hulk and with Spider-Man, those characters are very well known. And guess which two characters didn't get origin stories in their films? Yeah. The Incredible Hulk was, well, he had an orange, an origin story in the Ang Lee film. And the fact that Marvel did their own version within five years of Ang Lee was their stated reason for not doing the origin story. They say like, right. We'll see visual elements that will sort of echo both the TV series and the Ang Lee film. If you've seen the Ang Lee film, we're not going to contradict it. So you have the Ang Lee film, you have the Bill Bixby series, you have this, this, you know, general awareness of what the Hulk's deal is. And so that film takes some shortcuts based on that mm -hmm. general knowledge. Spider-Man yeah. even more so with two origin stories given in the last 20 years and the general, you know, all of the, the cartoons. All of the, you know, Spider-Man is the most widely known Marvel character. So whenever they are bringing him into the MCU, even when he gets his own film, no origin story. The words Uncle Ben have not been stated in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No. And, I mean, that works. My father is a good example of someone who has never read a comic in his life. If you ask him a Trivial Pursuit question, he could not tell you that Spider-Man and Peter Parker are one and the same. but. I have seen him fin fill in the blanks when if you say, with great power must also come, and he can tell you great responsibility. Right? He doesn't know where he knows it, but there's enough of Spider-Man's origin that's kind of been assimilated by the culture. So I think that when it comes to um, Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, although Snyder shows his own version when he wants to make <laughs> it a point that it's different, he also is using a lot of that cultural awareness. He doesn't show a whole lot of super feats because everyone knows that Superman saves people. He shows super feats in Man of Steel. He shows super feats in Batman v Superman as a part of other aspects of his story. There is a whole string of super feats in Batman v Superman, but they're overlaid yeah. with political discourse of whether or not he should even be doing them. So. Yeah. We have had 18 months of the world in love with their superhero. And now that Nairomi has happened and Lex Luthor is manipulating events and the political conversation is changing about Superman, now he's still doing the super feats, but Zack Snyder's storytelling is presenting the concept that, you know what, it's, it's not that great a job to be working for people whenever they're talking crap about you. Yeah, and I get that. And there, there definitely is that sequence. I mean, one one of the visuals, again, that strikes me, like there were events there, but it's really Zack Snyder's visuals that he dives into. And that's, you know, Superman hauling the tanker out, pulling it by the chain through the ice and that sort of thing. So we do see some of his positive interactions. It's just so when he starts fighting, you know, he doesn't seem to do a lot about the collateral damage. I mean, you don't want to overplay it. I think one of the weakest moments in... Superman 2 by Donner and Lester is the way Christopher Reeve delivers the line, 
you can't the people in the last battle. I think it was a, a little too much in there, but you know, you get that acknowledgement and that Superman, the Chris Reeve Superman deliberately tries to lure the supervillains away from the major population. And that's not something we saw when he was fighting Zod last time. We didn't see him try to, you know, not go head on against Doomsday and start smacking him down in the middle of Metropolis or, or Gotham, you know, whichever side of the, the harbor they were on, but not even try to just grab him and take him out in the middle of nowhere to reduce the collateral damage. And that's, that's a concern that has been in most versions of Superman that's not here as pronounced as I want it to be. I would beg to differ on that. He got both of them into space. He got both of them as oh. pretty far away as he could. Mm -hmm. um, That's true, yeah. But in both fights, it is all he can do to keep even, much less try mm -hmm. to gain the upper hand. There's, there's, whenever you are fighting mm -hmm. for your life, and it's all you can do to just, you know, not get pummeled to death. Things like mm -hmm. drawing the fight away aren't even a concern. They're, you're about to die. And in the Doomsday fight, they did make a point in the script to mention how the, the vicinity was evacuated. And in yeah. the fight with Batman, we saw no evidence that there were other people in the vicinity of their fight. I think that was one mm -hmm. criticism of Man of Steel that they did bring forth in this. But also the fact that they were fighting in a metropolis in Man of Steel was part of the story. And that's what was part of what, you know, fed into Batman v Superman mm -hmm. was the fact that they were fighting in a crowded area and people were dying. But again, I, I maintain that Superman, he did manage to get that fight into space. That's true. He did this time. And again, a lot of this will be influenced from Man of Steel. It, Man of Steel, I think, would have been helped a lot in the moment during the Metropolis fight when the military officer says, this man is not our enemy and let Superman go, it would have been helped tremendously if Superman had taken that opportunity to say, I don't think I can contain them. I'm barely holding on. Can you guys lead the evacuation? Just that dialogue to say, yes, he's thinking about these people and he is in that situation. Like it, It's totally viable that what you're describing could be exactly what Snyder had in mind. All it would have taken was two lines of dialogue, equivalent to even Superman 3, is arguably the weakest Superman film to date, at least on a script level. You know, he's in the chemical plant. He sees a couple guys, you know, carrying out one of their coworkers. And he says, gentlemen, is that man all right? right? Like he, again, his life is not in danger there. But all it would have taken is one line of dialogue. But Snyder would much rather communicate with visuals than with dialogue. And I think it, it hurts his film. There are entire sequences here that go five or six minutes like the the chase scene leading into the first Batman Superman fight when he stops the Batmobile, I think there's six or seven minutes with little or no dialogue. Mm -hmm. Right. The most is like, where'd he go? Because Snyder likes to tell things with visuals, but sometimes you can't always do that, especially when you've got fast-paced action. You don't get a lot of emotional nuance from a CGI duplicate of Henry Cattle. And I, I think that's a a lot of where it's coming down to is that there, I think part of what frustrated me and why this is ultimately unsatisfying comes down to two or yeah, two or three major points for me. One is that the interpretation of Superman that we saw in Man of Steel, while it's a completely valid interpretation, 
is not one I personally care for. And that, the, and that's the one where he's not telling people to save people. Yeah, is, where that, he's is that what you mean? Not by that? explicitly speaking out, where it's just it's just a very drab color palette and a very dark film, and it's not the tone I wanted in a Superman film. I like Superman when he's inspiring those around him to be better people. And we don't see enough of that in these movies. We see some of that, but not enough of that. You know, it's not like the Grant Morrison JLA when Kyle Rayner and Wally West realize, wait, we're on the same team as Batman and Superman. We got to step up our game. That's right there on day one, where just the fact that he's there inspires those around him. That's one of the issues. Another issue is that seeing Batman and Superman together on the big screen for the first time after waiting this long, I didn't want to see them in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I understand now the entire reason that they chose to end Man of Steel with so much destruction in Metropolis was because they wanted Batman and Superman to be in conflict with each other in this film and it was setting this up. Because they had these two and Justice League mapped out as a trilogy feeding into each other. So we get to where we were in Justice League. So a lot of those choices that that bothered me were because they were driving towards another choice that I didn't want them to make. Again, a valid choice, just not what I was hoping for. Mm -hmm. I heard that question a lot in the days leading up to the film, is why are they fighting? Mm -hmm. Um, Because... And this goes back to my points earlier about popular media. You know, popular media, there's a lot of Superman and Batman out there. There's a lot of general consensus and general consciousness about what Superman and Batman are like because of the previous films and the cartoons and all the other stuff that gets consumed by the larger public, not the comics fans. And that larger public doesn't really have a concept of Batman and Superman as antagonists. To one another. Mm -hmm. Whereas people who've been reading the comics spent 15 years, 10 years at least, with a Batman and Superman who were reluctant allies. And one of the most iconic Batman films to the comics audience is one where Superman is sent after a vigilante Batman to stop him and they fight. So, I totally get how, you know, the notion is out there that they did not want Superman and Batman to be enemies. I have no problems with the idea, because it's, it seems to be that even whenever they're not, even whenever they're presented as allies, even they're presented as teammates, there's like this, this, in modern storytelling, at least that I've read, this general understanding that they are polar opposites of what it means to be a hero. And the fact that they work together is kind of a miracle. And it really mm-hmm. probably could easily be any other way, but they're getting along because they're both well-intentioned people. They just have very different modus operandi or whatever mm-hmm. the plural is for that in Latin. My daughter would know. Anyways, when we were getting close to the film and they were going to be going up against each other, we got the title Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. I don't know, it never really struck me to, to, to question it. That, because even back in, I think it was July of 13, the J- San Diego Comic Con, after the film had just for now, it may have been July of 14. When did the, 
Manistel came out in 13. So this must have been mm-hmm. July of 14 whenever they announced the sequel to Man of Steel. And that's whenever he read the um, the lines from the comic and put the uh, Batman Superman superimposed logo on the screen and the crowd went nuts. So an idea of Batman and Superman being antagonists certainly was well received at the onset by things like Comic-Con and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the general public at large, they don't have that concept. Uh, so giving them a reason for Batman and Superman to be in conflict, giving them a really concrete, not just, I am the dark, you are the light kind of thing, but <laughs> real solid, this man wrecked my world. And therefore, you know, I and combined with all of Bruce Wayne's other emotional issues that are presented in the film, sets him at odds with Superman. And then giving Superman really concrete reasons to mistrust and to go after Batman, I think was important. And so those are elements that the film really focused on because those are not shorthand that Zack Snyder could depend on. Yeah, and again, that's part of the issue. I I think I enjoyed it more watching the Ultimate Edition than I did with either the theatricals. And that's something, it's not necessarily Snyder's fault, but it is an issue with the theatrical release of the movie. Watching the two versions, knowing that Ultimate Edition is closer to the cut Snyder handed over to the studios before they had their own editors go at it, the 30 minutes of footage that was removed is all establishing themes and characters. It's Clark Kent learning more about the Batman and what happens to them in Metropolis. It's moments like that that reinforce the themes that were removed, but all the expensive visual effects were left in because that's what they paid for. It really feels as though this is another instance of studios saying, okay, if movies are more than X minutes long, we're not going to get as many screenings on opening weekend. And because production studios get a bigger percentage of the box office dollar in the first two weeks, they have a habit of cutting for length to get more screenings in rather than making their edits based on what's going to make a better movie. Yeah. I mean, it's not as horrible as Superman 4. Like I said, from a script level, 4 is better than Superman 3. The finished product of Superman 3 is better than the finished product of Superman 4 in the Chris Reeve era. But that's because director Sidney J. Fury was promised a $55 million budget. And two weeks before production began, they said, yeah, we don't have $55 million. You're getting 17 So the only thing that he could afford to cut at that point were visual effects. He turned in a 136-minute film with terrible visual effects. I think the, the studios looked at that and said, we're losing our shirts on this one way or the other. Cut it down to get it under the 90-minute mark. That's my sus- suspicion. Because that was the point at that time where they get in more screenings in the multiplexes opening weekend. And Sidney Fury's 136-minute film was cut down to 89 minutes and 52 seconds. Mm. So many of the things in the film that feel like plot holes in the theatrical edition were not plot holes at the script level. It's just that a third of the movie is missing. Wow. And I, I, I see evidence of that here. There are some moments that are important for establishing and reinforcing the themes that did not make it into the theatrical cut. So the the ultimate edition is, to my mind, undoubtedly the superior one because it reinforces that. Because we see more of why Bruce or why Clark Kent does not trust the Batman that didn't come across in the theatrical edition. A lot of those scenes were cut. Which is unfortunate. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, my own personal experience viewing the films was 
when I saw the Ultimate Edition, my response was, for most of the editions, okay, that helps to better and to fully develop things that I already knew or realized about the film, as far as storytelling beats, as far as plot. But it does help to flesh out those themes and those concepts in really constructive ways. The only element of the film that I feel like was completely missing from the original cut that was present in the second cut is I was very confused by the testimony from the Nairobi woman. Again, I think her, I think her name is Kahina. I didn't write it down and I hate to get someone the wrong name because it wasn't driving with what was on screen. And I did not get the impression from the original cut that she was lying because Lex Luthor told her to lie, which is painted out explicitly in the ultimate edition. Yeah. However, I went on Facebook and talked about this as soon as I saw it. And a couple were like, oh yeah, I totally got that from the original cut. So I could have just missed it. One thing that you mentioned, this, this feeds into another idea about the film that goes on with what you mentioned earlier. And that is the, um, the fact that Snyder likes to do his films through visuals means that his scripts are often very specifically crafted, I think. <laughs> very few words are wasted in either Man of Steel or Batman v Superman. <laughs> and I think that adds that adds to a difficulty of access for a casual viewing, but I think a richness of script for multiple repeat watches. Cause there can be because there are the details are very specifically laid in into the script. There can be things that you miss that you get later on or things that you see a different way later on. At least that's been my experience with both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman that most of the times that I've rewatched this film, either of these films, I've seen something new or I've heard something new or I've heard something a different way than I heard it before. One of my favorite scenes in Man of Steel is one of the most ridiculed, which is the scene where Jonathan is exploring with young Clark what it means for him to use his powers. I think marketing gave that scene a disservice because they focused on a very controversial opening line from Jonathan and left mm-hmm. out the three paragraphs of exploration of the concept that came immediately afterward. So people are walking away with Jonathan saying Clark should kill people or let them die whenever Jonathan's like, I just, I don't know because I'm scared because you're young. And if people see you as your powers and you're not ready, you're going to have to make these decisions at some time, but you're only 12. You're my son and I don't want to lose you. And I don't, you know, he's wrestling with all of the emotions that a father has when they're raising their kids. And, um, he has this child with these abilities that could cause him to lose his son. And so whenever he says maybe in the opening line of that conversation, it's not because he's a terrible father. It's not because he doesn't think his child should be a hero. It's because he's a human being who doesn't want to lose his boy. And I feel like that's one of those scenes that was really hampered by trailers and has just thrown the entire conversation about that entire film out of whack. 
that that is a possibility because that that's part of it. I mean, I get not wanting to lose your child, but he's not raising a superhero. He's raising a boy. Yeah. And some of this could be the differences between us with our our reading and familiarity with the comics. I am, I would say, much more familiar with the Superman comic book source material than the average Joe on the street. Mm -hmm. But I'm also nowhere nearly as well read with the character as you are. And again, that's because my favorite Superman stories are the ones where he's inspiring others more than Superman itself, because it is challenging to come up with a, a credible threat to Superman. And a lot of the, the best tension with Superman stories are based on the fact that no matter how fast he is, he cannot be in two places at once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, push him in the time management area more than anything else. Right. Make it so that, you know, how when it's, you know, who saved, who gets saved and who doesn't make it so he has to choose between a bus full of school children or Lois Lane, because that's a decision he's going to wrestle with. But to me, I don't like a Superman who thinks in terms of either or for who to save. Superman should struggle with how do I save them all? And that's part of it. I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of their interpretation of Perry White here, who says, yeah, people don't read newspapers, and he's given up on chasing the big stories and coming up with clickbait headlines. Again, it's a valid choice, but I want a Perry White who's trying to be the last of the old guard. And if he's wrestling with anything, you know, if he does give in to like the clickbait style, I want to see Perry White wrestling with his desire to do legitimate, hard-hitting journalism weighed against his responsibility for keeping the paper operating and making sure that his staff can put food on the table and only giving in to the, the clickbait style for the sake of keeping his people employed and keeping the business healthy. I'd like to think that this Perry White had those internal wrestlings that just, you know, were not part of how he dealt with his staff. But you're right that the film doesn't show that, that that's not the story that, that Snyder's telling. That's not the, that's not what the film is choosing to explore. So from a, uh, from a, a universe storytelling perspective, I'd like to agree with you. That's the, that's the Perry White I want to see. But from a filmmaking yeah. perspective, that's just not the film that they were making. No. Yeah. And I do want to point out that that's nothing against Lawrence Fishburne. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Even beyond that, I actually want to call out Christy Carlson as a member of the production staff. She served as casting director for this film, Man of Steel, Justice League, and Wonder Woman. And I would say that nobody was miscast in any of those films. Mm -mm. I... I've heard a lot of people say that Jesse Eisenberg was miscast. I wouldn't say that, although another one of my problems with this film is that this is not a version of Lex Luthor I want to see. Now, yeah, this could be Lex Luthor II, Alexander Luthor, son of the original Lex Luthor, but that's not Jesse Eisenberg's fault. Je From all I've read online, the only thing that Jesse Eisenberg did was recognize that, you know, this version of Lex Luthor is consistent with his interpretation. He just changed some lines of dialogue deliberately to keep his co-stars on edge around him because they weren't really sure what he was going to do because this Lex Luthor was written as a character who's erratic and unpredictable and people around him don't necessarily know what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. So what he was doing helped the actors around him act the way they would around his character. I just, 
yeah, I would have rather have seen this redone Superman done with a different villain than than Lex Luthor. I mean, we don't get the classic. He's not the really the evil scientist Lex Luthor, and he's not really the business mogul Lex Luthor. He's he, he is a new version. I mean, they talk about him how Lex Luthor had a son in the comics, and it was Lex Luthor's quote unquote son who was the Lex Luthor running LexCorp during the Death and Return of Superman arc that inspired this. So there is that, but that Lex Luthor was also a clone body of the original with the first guy's mind implanted in his body, whereas this Lex seems to have genuine family issues. And that is another one of the themes here. We've got Superman, Batman, and Lex Luthor, who are all largely motivated by their relationships with their parents and the influence their parents have had on them and how they take that influence in different directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very important theme. Yeah, knowing about the, you know, the the issues that Scott Snyder had within his family that led to a massive tragedy around the time of filming Justice League, I kind of get why those themes were so important to him. There's nothing wrong with it, and it, it's just feeding right in, but it felt like that was feeding into why we had Lex Luthor II rather than the original Lex that founded LexCore. I do think that this depiction of Lex is in keeping with a lot of depictions of young Lex Luthor in modern comics. Young Lex Luthor is often seen as a bit more manic and a bit more mercurial than he would be as an adult. And I think that this Lex Luthor that we get in this film is very much in keeping with that. But again, that's not the 40-year-old man who is a bit more temperate and controlled in his you know, mm-hmm. manipulations of others. He's still a wild manipulator of people in this film and in the comics. It's just how he goes about doing that is a bit different. Uh, I, I think that if anything, he's going to gain nuance as he gets older, whereas as a young person here, he's a little bit manic. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the Luthor from Secret Origin from Jeff Johns. I'm thinking of the Luthor from, oh, I have a couple other images in my mind. But I can't think of the stories that they're from, where um, he's almost, almost a kind of character who could turn into the Joker. Just in the way that he's so, I don't know, I, I, I'm losing, I, I don't have the adjectives for it, but I really enjoy Jesse Eisenberg. I think that his relationship with Senator Finch in this film is a delight to watch. Their mutual antagonism, he with the manipulation and the, the sinister resentment and she, from a position of power, fully confident in her role as a senator, having to deal with this somewhat imbalanced young upstart who thinks he can get away with whatever he wants. You know, and they're, they're, they're at odds with each other. And I'm thinking of the, the scene when he asks her for the weapon in his lab, followed up by the scene in his office whenever he really starts to show his true colors. Mm-hmm. Followed up by the scene in the hallway, which only exists in the Ultimate Edition. Again, another really good scene that helps to flesh this out before they go into the courtroom. We get a little bit of that in the theatrical cut, but there is more between them 
in the hallway before they go inside in the, in the Ultimate Edition. There is, and it belonged there. Yeah. I mean, that is it. So again, I don't fault Jesse Eisenberg. I actually enjoy his performance. I just wish that they'd given the character a different name. Had they not named him Lex Luthor, I would have zero issues with Jesse Eisenberg and his performance. They could name him Robert or whatever the Max... What's the guy's name in Superman 3? They could name him that. <laughs> yeah, Robert Vaughn's character. Yeah. Yeah. Because it... I mean, and you can see him calming down a little bit. I mean, when he told Superman he doesn't know how to lose and Superman says he'll learn, once he's in prison getting his head shaved, a lot of the manic energy goes away. Now... Again, some of this here, we see elements in ADR that don't line up because it's it, it's frustrating because if you look at that last prison scene when he's there in the prison tunic, you know, his head is shaved, he's calmed down a bit. There's two great references, but it frustrates me because for the most part, Zack Snyder pays a lot of attention to detail, right? The, for the vast majority of this, things are the way they are on screen because that's the way Snyder wants them. Mm-hmm. And yet in the last scene, at least in the Ultimate Edition, when they call him by, by his prison number, he's prisoner, I think it's AC23194, a direct reference to Lex Luthor first appearing in Action Comics, AC number 23 from 1940, right? That, that's a nice touch. But then he stands up and turns around, and you realize that Action Comics reference was... ADR, so it's dialogue recorded after the scene and superimposed on it, because his actual prison number on the tunic is TK421, referencing the Stormtrooper <laughs> from the first Star Wars. Okay, yeah, I, I, I agree, I agree. There, He does pay so much attention to detail that, you know, the the, the viewer who wants to can relish going in and finding detail after detail after detail that when there's a flub, it is frustrating. It's just like, I, I want that to mean something, but it's just a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, the same, I mean, following that hallway scene, you know, in the office, Holly Hunter's character, the Senator Finch says, you know, you could pee in a mug and call it granny's peach tea. I'm not going to drink it. And, when she's sitting on the stand, she sees this jar with tape on it and turns it around and it's labeled Granny's Peach Tea. And that's when she realizes, wait a minute, there's this jar of urine, looks up, sees that Lex is missing right, or missing right before the explosion. Mm -hmm. Again, Zack Snyder thinks primarily in visuals more so than the other senses. There's no way an open jar of undiluted urine in that size would have gone unnoticed that long on that bench because urine smells <laughs> okay okay uh, yeah I'll, I'll buy that but it still works for me <laughs> i mean yeah okay it worked for me on first viewing because again it was just the visuals but rewatching it later it's like yeah you know what People would have been going around trying to find the source of that smell before the hearing even started, right? It, it would not have lasted that long, right? At, at the very least, all they had to do was put a lid on the jar. Mm-hmm. And then that's gone. So it's just, so like Snyder pays so much attention to some details that when others slip by, it's frustrating because it's, it's inconsistent. Well, I am inconsistent 100% of the time. Okay. <laughs> At least you're consistent in your inconsistencies. <laughs>
No, I, I can see that. I mean, my brain is automatically coming up with, you know, no prizes and justifications and how it could work, because that's exactly what my brain does whenever anything I like is criticized. I automatically become the apologist and start going to bat for it. But um, but it's fine. I I think it's one of the best gags of the film, though. It's one of the few times where I think everyone in the theater laughed out loud when mm-hmm. they, it's when that, that gets revealed. So, I don't know. But that does, I guess, bring in the idea of one of the elements of this film that I think largely gets ridiculed that also was... It was easily no prizable from the theatrical cut in exactly the same way that it was explained in the Ultimate Edition. And that is the explosion that happens in the hearing and why Superman doesn't seem to have any sort of advanced mm-hmm. warning or advanced knowledge or there's just nothing he can do. It just happens right in front of his face and that's the explosion. And so I, I think that it's another place where the, the theatrical cut like you said, they were cutting things out and they cut out some really important elements, which are that, hey, he didn't know that that was the bomb was there because of the lead shielding on the wheelchair. Yeah. And when I saw that in the Ultimate Edition, before they had that dialogue, I was thinking back to wondering, have we ever had any evidence at all that this Superman has X-ray vision? That's information that we brought forth from comics and from the other incarnations. But if we look solely at Snyder's, I don't think we know he has X-ray vision. So watching it until no, no, we, we had that we dialogue. Do. Okay, from his uh, from his childhood. It? Okay, right. So it that that's a detail that I would have remembered from the previous viewings then, but not having seen Man of Steel in a while, I missed it this time. No, but you're right because what powers he gets, what powers he shows, does help to inform what to ex- what you know why some choices are made now. We see him fly at extremely high velocity in order to get around the world to get to Lois Lane once he realizes that she's in danger. Where is he whenever he realizes she's in danger? How far does he have to go to get there? I don't know. But we never see, what we never see in this film or in Man of Steel is a zip, zip, zip kind of super speed. Mm -hmm. We never see him move just flitting around at impossible speeds. Yeah, we don't get that classic scene of, you know, like in Lois and Clark, where he zips around and cleans up the messy apartment between someone knocking on the door and him answering the door. Right. Which I think was actually done better in the John Wesley Ship Flash series. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, where he, like, go- goes around and around and around in circles trying to clean up the apartment and then just stops because... He's pushed the air out of so now all the loose papers are just moving around in a cyclone, so he just stands there, waits for them all to fall, and opens the door and lets the person see a messy apartment. I think it's uh, the the female of the yeah. show, the doctor character who comes in. But yeah, yeah, so with situations like, why isn't Superman saving people during the Man of Steel fight? Uh, I think that one of the explanations could be, well, he may be fast, but he's not that fast. He is a Superman, but he's not, you know, lightning bolt running around like the Flash is in the, um, in the Justice League film, in the Batman v mm-hmm. Superman film. So he is holding his own and doing his best to fight Zod, but he cannot go around and save people in the uh, area around him. Yeah. And if, if they'd at least 
shown us a moment where he tries that and one of the other Kryptonians steps in and, you know, they've proven that they're keeping him away from those people and he realizes he has to focus on them first. I, I just would have liked a little more on screen to get us there. Because you're right, it can be inferred, but it's ambiguous enough that when the rest of the movie's not satisfying and you don't have that reaction you're talking about where you're trying to be the apologist to try to justify it, you start questioning, well, did they really mess that up? Is it just not a part of this character? Because it, it could go either way without enough on-screen evidence. I think it's definitely a part of the character. Um, I don't, and this is, you know, this is going to sound bad if, if it's just taken as a soundbite. I don't think that Clark Kent was at the point in his life when he was fighting Zod that he was in the mindset of trying to save a bunch of people. I don't think he was there yet. I don't think his life journey had gotten him there. I made a comment earlier that Jonathan Kent was not raising a superhero. Jonathan Kent was raising a child. The Jonathan Kent that we get in the comic books is a Jonathan Kent who is raising a superhero. Mm -hmm. The modern Jonathan Kent is inspired by the Superboy era Jonathan Kent, and that Jonathan Kent was raising Superboy. The modern Jonathan Kent is all about teaching young, young Clark how to be Superman. Mm -hmm. This Clark Kent is not on a mission to become Superman. This Clark Kent is trying to live a life, trying to do what he can, trying to find his origins and find his roots. Being a superhero is not something that I think ever occurs to him. Then you get to the situation where his people have come to Earth. They've demanded he go and turn himself over to them. And it's not his first inclination to do so. He decides to. He realizes he has to, but this film, I think one of the things that Zack Snyder was doing is setting aside all of the assumptions that these characters are going to do what they're supposed to do just because they're supposed to do it. Instead, mm -hmm. he's giving them a journey to go on to find out why and how maybe one day they'll become those people. It goes with along with Lex Luthor. It it ties into to um the super, the Clark we get in Man of Steel. Then in the eighteen mm -hmm. months between Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, that's when yes, he has saved the world, and he's there. He can continue doing good things for people. He can save you if you're on a, if if you're in a flood. He can catch the missile that goes wrong. He has an ear out for his you know almost wife, and so he definitely goes and saves her whenever her life is in danger. In Africa, but I don't think that the Clark in the Zod fight in Man of Steel is a superhero. I think he is a superman. Yeah, one of the, the things I realized coming out of Man of Steel, I think the reason that they went with the title Man of Steel instead of Superman is because he wasn't Superman yet for the majority of that film. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things Snyder did was really push the Superman origin much further back in his life. So instead of you know, becoming the person Superman is and then putting on the suit as an adult, like we largely see in the Richard Donner film and a lot of other incarnations where he kind of comes out fully formed, he does have to learn what to what it means to be a hero. If you listen to the Man of Steel podcast, I have softened on that, especially the, the death of Zod, because I'm now interpreting that as more Superman-assisted suicide, because that's an issue I have with Zod 
putting his like his eye beams after those innocent people, as well as Doomsday trying to shoot down the Batmobile here, eye beams go where you are looking, and there's no discernible delay between leaving the eye and reaching the target in this interpretation. The fact that Zod was shooting near the people and not hitting them meant he was giving Superman time to react. So there, you know, it it makes sense. One of the issues I had is I don't want to see Superman killing, even though there was precedent for him killing Zod. It doesn't sit right with me even in Superman 2, the, the Donner slash Lester film. In that time, I could think of a few things Superman could have done with his powers to stop Zod and save those people in other ways. But it was on rewatching when I realized, yeah, Zod is taking his time to bring his eye beams over to those guys. That was his way of telling Superman, I am not going to stop until you stop me. And Zod had given up on making this new Krypton, but couldn't bring himself to stop. So, like I said, I, I think that was a, a Superman-assisted suicide, really. I'm going to... I want to say that I disagree with your reading, but I think your reading is also in keeping with what we're given in the film. I think it's 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 definitely an a interpretation that is consistent because we do see a Zod who is in a certain amount of despair over the loss mm-hmm. of his entire reason for being. And he has laid out the ultimatum early on in the fight. This is going to end one way with one of us dying. And... He says during the course of the fight that every single thing I have done has been for Krypton. And now you have made it so there is no Krypton and there never will be a Krypton. And so his reason for existence no longer exists. So I can definitely see how he might have been crying out for a release. Yeah, and... I, don't know, I could see, I could, I could see the formative, but yeah, a lot of it, it just, like I said, it's not my version of Superman. When Lex has given Superman that ultimatum, "Kill the batter, I kill your mother," mm-hmm. and Superman goes. When that fight starts, he has no reason to believe that Batman is a credible threat to him, and he starts off saying, "I want to talk," but he's the one that makes the first move, pushing. Batman in the shoulder and basically throwing him across the lot. Whereas he could have just stood there and not saying, listen to me, started explaining and just repeating himself, taking one of her Batman and throwing at him until he realized Batman actually had a viable weapon. Right? Because at that point, Batman couldn't have hurt him. He's like, we're being manipulated. Lexit wants me to kill you or he'll kill someone important to me. And I didn't see enough of him trying to start that conversation before he started pushing Batman around before Batman threw a punch at him. Uh, Batman did do the first attack, though. Yeah, he'd already hit him with the Sonics, but then Superman Uh came up and said, we need to listen, put his hand, or you need to listen, put his hand on his shoulder, and pushed him across the yard, which is not the act of someone who's there to speak and communicate. Right, instead of shoving him, he should have kept talking. Eh, I mean, I deal with 8th graders all the time. And so that's to say I deal with keyed up emotions all the time. And I'm in a marriage that is not always the smoothest sailing. I don't know. When your emotions are keyed up, you don't always do the best things. But I think he did tell Batman, we're here to talk. Everything Batman has done for him to him up to this point has been animosity. Whatever the adjective mm-hmm. form of animosity is malicious mm-hmm. and 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 harmful 
I think even though in that immediate moment, the only thing Batman has done is Sonics, I think we've certainly, through the course of the events of the story, through the weeks and months that the story's been taking place, he has definitely been given enough reason to understand that he needs to take Batman into a position where Batman can be made to listen. I don't think Batman's mm-hmm. just going to stand there and listen. I think Superman mm-hmm. realizes Batman's not just going to stand there and listen. He's wearing armor. He's ready to fight. He's attacking Superman. Superman's going to have to make mm-hmm. him listen. But again, it might not be the best decision. You're right. It's not probably the most level-headed decision because he's not in the most level-headed state of mind. And I know yeah. that the Superman that we get in comics and Superman that we get in the Donner films and the Superman that is often often depicted is always a calm thinker, except for all the times when he's not. There are lots of places in the comics where Superman is driven to anger. There are lots of places in the comics where he's reduced in power and increased in emotions, and he becomes a ferocious person. Superman, (laughs) if you look at his 80 80 years of history, on many occasions, is not acting in the best interests of those around him because he's in a keyed up emotional state. And I think it's human. I think it's definitely in keeping with the tone that's with the theme of Snyder's depiction of Superman, which is a, a human being with superpowers. And therefore he acts the same way human beings would act, not necessarily the way that an icon of comic superhero would act. Mm-hmm. But in addition to being in keeping with Snyder's theme, it is also in keeping with the comics depictions we've gotten over the years. That some of them I've when in our conversations on social media or social media, I've compared Snyder's Superman to the Golden Age Superman, saying that that's the Superman interpretation this most reminds me of. And I've realized on rewatching, it's because of the element, the the primary element that I'm glad that Superman largely lost since the Golden Age is how quickly he loses his temper. And this Superman still has that. I would I would agree with you that, yes, that was a typical trope of the Golden Age. Although it was less common later, it definitely has happened. I mean, yeah, on, on any number of occasions, he loses oh, yeah. his temper and yeah, has I've to be held back. It. Yeah, I've seen it in World of Krypton. I've seen it elsewhere. But you know, normally... He can, I mean, he can lose his temper in all interpretations. It's just the Golden Age Superman seems to have had the shortest fuse. Yeah. One of the other elements that we do like to discuss in these podcasts, and since we're well over an hour into it, we probably should get to the other elements on the typical outline, is to talk about how things fared at the box office. And I want to do this one because a lot of Marvel fans, and I consider myself a Marvel fan more than a DC fan, but I see no reason why it has to be one or the other. A lot of people who seem to think you could be a fan of Marvel or DC, but not both, have a habit of declaring this as a box office failure or underperforming. And I looked up the numbers, not just for this, but for the entire DC extended universe. And I would say that, yeah, that's just plain not true. (laughs) (laughs) To be considered profitable, your profit has to be you're looking for something approximately two to three times what you brought in in the box office, right? So if your total gross were in somewhere in two to three times your budget, 
then you are considered profitable. Well, if we look at this particular film, it had a $250 million estimated budget. So we're looking for five to seven fifty. Right. The domestic gross was only three hundred and thirty million. The worldwide gross was about five hundred and forty three million. So the total worldwide box office was eight hundred and seventy three million six hundred thirty four thousand nine hundred and nineteen dollars. So this is actually the highest grossing worldwide of all of the five of the DC Extended Universe films. So that's Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, and Justice League. Total worldwide gross, it's number one of those five. It brought in $624 million, approximately more than its budget. So the gross is about 3.5 times the budget. So this made money. Mm -hmm. For domestic gross, it's second to Wonder Woman but the worldwide gross pushed it way over the edge. So Wonder Woman is actually the most profitable in proportion and in terms of like just total box office minus budget, we're looking at about 673 million. Now we can't just do total box office minus budget to find profitability because the production studio, the distributor, the exhibitor, so your local theater, of course, gets a percentage of the box office dollar, not a huge percentage. When I worked at a theater 20 years ago, or over 20 years ago now, with most Fox and Disney films, the theater would be lucky to keep 15% of your box office dollar opening weekend. And those shares have shrunken. That's actually part of the reason so many theaters are on board with the assigned seating 3D theaters at that premium dollar, because that was a negotiation they had with the studios. They get to keep that entire premium, which is nice, because if you look at, say, what Disney does for Star Wars, for the Canadian retailers, I'm not in the theaters anymore, but I've spoken to people who are, apparently Disney is not interested in compensating for the difference between the Canadian and U.S. dollars. Oh, they just want numbers of dollars? They want X number of dollars for every ticket sold, which means if you see a Star Wars film in 2D in Canada, the theater you see it in cuts Disney a check because they get more than the box office ticket sold for. If you see it in 3D, then, this, then the theater can make some money. Wow. But if you see it in 2D and don't buy at the box, at concession... They're operating at a loss. That's why concession prices are what they are. Even before these numbers came up when I was there 20 years ago, we could sell out every seat in every theater all night. And if no one went to concession, we'd lose money. That's not wow. enough to pay rent and power. Okay. Well, I just, I, I think it's important just to, to sum up some of your math points earlier that you do have to think of these things in terms of percentages and in terms of multiplying factors not in terms of adding and subtracting straight numbers, because, like you said, mm -hmm. they're looking at percentages, they're looking at how the two numbers compare as a factor of each other, not as just, oh, this is $500, $500 million over? Oh, great, that's $500 million. No, it's $500 million as compared to what we started with. Yeah. And that's why I looked at all five and ranked them. And depending on whether you look at the profit or the profitability. So if you look at domestic gross minus budget, 
this is the second highest ranking film of the set. But if you look at it as a percentage of budget, it's actually third. Either way you look at it, Wonder Woman is number one by Mm -hmm. a wide margin. And then number two, if you look at it proportionately as we should, it's actually Suicide Squad. So a lot of the fans who weren't happy with Suicide Squad and were shocked to hear there's a sequel, that's because the first one made a lot of money. $175 million budget, $747 million worldwide gross. It's over four times the budget. So that was profitable. Hence, there will be more. Batman v Superman is next at about 3.5 times the budget. Man of Steel is about triple the budget in the end. So it brought in $668 million over $225 million in the budget. Now, those budget numbers and all the grosses I've been pulling from Box Office Mojo, which tend to be very accurate, they did not have the budget for Justice League. I do know the raw gross on Justice League was the lowest of any of these movies. It was $656 million. The budget is listed on Wikipedia as $300 million. But Box Office Mojo tends to use just the production dollars, whereas Wikipedia will often include marketing, which is another reason we look at proportions. So we may not be comparing apples to apples with that. But it does put it as the least profitable of these movies to the point that it may not have actually made a profit in theaters. Any profit it may have made may be coming from the secondary home video sales, as well as all the merchandise tie-ins and all of that. I think it's important to note that in the history of TV ratings and movie box office things, a lot of times, I think most of the time, the general trend is however well-received one installment is done, that will be reflected in the next installment. A really high-ratings event might actually be because the one right before it was really, really good. Not always, mm-hmm. and, and maybe not even most time, but that, that is a, a, a common trend. I think Justice League made a lot of viewers happy, but mm-hmm. it was still the lowest box office number, and I think a lot of that has to do with the conversation about the DCEU that stemmed and, and, and flourished, for lack of a better word, in the wake of Batman v Superman. Yeah, and it is often is the predecessor, which actually surprises me because the most profitable one so far was Wonder Woman, and that was the direct predecessor to Justice League. I'm wondering how much of this is because the general public is more aware than they used to be of how much influence the director has in a film, and what we saw with Justice League with the underperformance followed the knowledge that they were bringing in Joss Whedon to do the reshoots after Snyder's personal tragedy, specifically the suicide of his daughter, during the filming of Justice League. Compare that to a lot of the conversations going on now with Solo, the latest Star Wars movie. They say it's underperforming at the box office. Really, it's not performing up to expectations. And it, it, again, may not turn a profit in theaters. After the very public firing of Lord and Miller partway through production and replacing him with Ron Howard, that's coming up in all the entertainment media talking about it because often change of director's been movie comes up with an inconsistent film it happened in superman 2 back in the day but people were less aware of that so i'm just wondering how much of that impacts the box office here because and to your point how things worked previously 
if you look at the Star Trek reboot franchise. The first one was very well received with critics and audiences. A lot of the diehard Star Trek fans didn't care for the first J.J. Abrams film because it was pushing more towards a Star Wars sensibility than a Star Trek sensibility, but it was broadly a success. When Into Darkness came out, the opening weekend box office numbers were huge because of a combination of the marketing and the goodwill earned by the success of the previous film. I was one of the people who was excited to be there opening night and significantly less excited walking out of it. That reaction to Inter Darkness is why I did not give Star Trek Beyond a try in theaters and it underperformed in theaters. I regret not supporting it in theaters now because I think Beyond was the best of the three and the most like classic Star Trek. And they are not following up on the franchise, to my knowledge. Is that correct? Uh, they've certainly slowed down because before Beyond came out, they'd announced that by the time we were recording this, so by this point in 2018, they would be well underway or have already released a fourth Star Trek echoing the original series again, where they were going to do odd numbers as original stories and even numbers echoing the originals. This would have been a time travel story where Chris Pine's Kirk meets his father as Chris Hemsworth. I want to see that movie. But because of the poor performance of Beyond, they are either slowing down or pushing the brakes on that. Yeah, they still have Chris Hemsworth option. So they're trying to see if they could do something with it. It it sounds like a concept I would want to see, but it would have been by the same writing team as Into Darkness. That was also part of their plan. Have like odd and even number teams. So the old odd even rule where the odd numbers were unsatisfying and the even numbers were satisfying in the classic Star Trek seems to have been reversed or gone off the rails. Some would argue with Star Trek Nemesis is, you know, others were saying, well, maybe there's a a, a multiple of five rule because Final Frontier and Nemesis were not well received. I'm just wondering if the odd even rule does work and you just have to include Galaxy Quest as a Star Trek movie that came out between Insurrection <laughs> and Nemesis. I think looking at patterns in history is a very different thing than trying to predict the future. I mean, it's it's... Yeah. Um, well, I would like, and of course, they've also made a, a Star Trek TV show that was phenomenal. But I did want to, I know we're kind of moving away from discussion of, of the content of the film and everything, but I did want to throw in some of my thoughts. We've talked about how Batman v Superman, in relation especially to its predecessors, I wanted to share just a few thoughts because I haven't really said this anywhere yet on Batman v Superman's relationship to its successor. And this really struck me when I was watching it for this recording. I hadn't watched it in a while and it's, uh, I don't think I'd seen it since I saw Justice League. I like a lot of Justice League. I think Mm -hmm. at the end of the day on, on the spectrum from, you know, the, the negative end of the emotional line to the positive end of the emotional line with zero in between I come down on the positive side with my overall, you know, appreciation of Justice League. It is not the film that Batman v Superman promised by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that that hampers my enjoyment, not my enjoyment of Batman v Superman, but my passion for it. I still think 
that Man of Steel, Batman v Superman as a single unit is my favorite Superman story in the bank of literature that exists. The third installment to follow Batman v Superman, we're never going to get. And I think that's tragic. Now, obviously, it's wrapped up in some really human tragedy. And I'm not holding this movie, you know, discussion against anyone that suffered as a result of the events that happened during the filming of Justice League. I think that to say you want a movie and that the director let you down whenever the director is going through really real stuff is is pretty inhuman. But yeah, I am glad that a lot of my fan friends really, really seem to gravitate to Justice League. I think that the binary discussion of Justice League's great and Batman v Superman is trash is is unhelpful. But I do wish that we had gotten Snyder's Justice League. Because I think that there would have been a great trilogy there that would have a nice... I don't know. The, the What it could have been is always going to live in my head as this, as this great film that puts a cap on all of the themes and all of the ideas and all the tones that he had done in the first two films that you get in a little bit of Justice League, especially towards the beginning. I think mm-hmm. Justice League, as you're watching it, it metamorphoses. It opens up as a very Zack Snyder film and closes as a very Joss Whedon film. And um, it kind of mm-hmm. staggers drunkenly from one end of the spectrum to the other. But but yeah, I just wanted to... I haven't really talked about Justice League anywhere on um, on the internet, except for a brief reaction discussion. But but yeah. What thoughts did mm-hmm. you have in, in uh, as how this film relates to Justice League? Yeah, I would agree that that Justice League is not really consistent with where this is going, and it's not the third one. I really enjoyed Justice League. I would put it second only to Wonder Woman in this set of films. If I were to rank all five of them, I would actually say Wonder Woman is number one with a bullet. They got her right from the start. She was one of the best parts of Batman v Superman. Like they, She was doing it very well here. We actually see a little more nuance with her in the Ultimate Edition, so she's a little less deus ex machina in the Ultimate Edition than the theatrical. Just loved her solo movie up until that last battle that seemed like CGI for the sake of CGI. And then feeding into Justice League, I I think you're right. You can see the seams where Joss Whedon was brought in, and he didn't finish the movie the way Snyder would have finished it. He finished it in the way he thought Snyder should have been doing it all along. I probably respond better to it than you did because... Like I said, Snyder's Superman is a valid Superman. It's not the one I want to see, whereas Joss Whedon's Superman is much more in line with the Superman I want to see on the big screen. So even though he's kind of forcing it, he does pull it closer to what I want. So I I did enjoy it more. I mean, it seems like he's leaving the last battle because there are people in need and leaves the fight up to everyone else but himself and the Flash. Tells the Flash... I forget which is left and right, but you take this side, I'll take that side. And the Flash comes out, this rookie hero, so proud that he saved these four people in the truck. And he turns around, and there's Superman with an apartment building filled with people, and he's bringing the whole building out with him. That's one of my favorite Superman moments on screen, in in any set. And Snyder has given me a few of those. 
I do like, in general, the moments where superheroes realize what they can do and the moment of realization. And that sequence where Superman is genuinely smiling when he's flying in the Arctic after realizing what he can do in Man of Steel is a truly great Superman movie. It's a great moment. So I wouldn't say really any film is all good or all bad. There are some where the good clearly outweighs the bad. There's some where the bad clearly outweighs the good. Batman v Superman and Justice League are both kind of close. Batman v Superman has a lot of good things in it, but not quite enough to tip the scales for me. Whereas Justice League, I really enjoyed in the theatrical release. I haven't had a chance to rewatch it. I may like it less on repeat viewings where I could see more of the seams between where the two directors came in. Somewhat like I enjoyed AI watching it in theaters the first time, but rewatching it, the differences between Kubrick and Spielberg. They are great directors, but Kubrick died and Spielberg actually directed it, but did everything Kubrick had laid out the way Kubrick had it laid out, even though Kubrick knew it wasn't done and it needed to rewrite to fix the fourth act? That comes out as a mess. When AI, I think, is best viewed, I, I would recommend people view it if they want to see the impact a director can make. Because that's one of the ones where it just stands out. There are some scenes that scream Kubrick and some scenes that scream Spielberg, and they are not the same. Mm -hmm. I, I largely suspect that Spielberg was unhappy with it, and that's why his next film was Minority Report, which is a much more consistent tribute to Kubrick, in my opinion. But that's a conversation to have in a totally different podcast, like that Stanley Kubrick podcast I've been thinking about doing so many times. <laughs> See, that's largely where it comes down. I mean, there are things I like. The computer geek in me loves the fact that the Bat computer is running some version of Unix or Linux. Like that slash dev slash leech underscore zero one tells right. me it's some kind of Unix. And given how paranoid Batman is, it's probably BOS or FreeBSD. The those are the two operating systems that have the best security track record. <laughs> I'm, I'm betting that's where it starts. But there's other things like, I mean, knowing that Jesse Eisenberg did a lot of improv, it makes me wonder if Eisenberg is the one who talked about Euclid's triangle inequality and the shortest distance between two points being a straight line, because that's not the triangle inequality. There is a triangle inequality, but the shortest distance between two points being a straight line is one of Euclid's axioms. The triangle inequality is separate. It's you know, you, if you have a triangle, the, you know, one side must be strictly shorter than the sum of the lengths of the other two sides. Right, but that's, okay, that's a way of stating the same, like, same concept, though. Uh, it's just, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line is independent of triangles. The triangle inequality no, 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 is, it is separate. But yeah. in a triangle, <laughs> jump through discussion, it, it, but you can use a triangle to illustrate that. Because one side of the triangle must always be the shortest distance between those two vertices, because the other two <laughs> sides must always add up to a greater distance. Yeah. So the triangle inequality theorem does show that the distance between two points is a straight line. Yeah, they're correlated, but Eisenberg's actual speech is the Euclid's tri or Euclid's triangle inequality says the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And that's not what it says. It just says it's somewhere in this range. Uh, it, it, in a range that is shorter and therefore the shortest distance. Uh, yeah, but it doesn't even say that. 
Because there's one distance that, that accepts it, and the inequality is just an inequality. There's a whole range. Somewhere What's between the distance zero that accepts and, it? It's actually a, a distance postulate. So it just... The, the math theory to me is saying it's, it's badly researched. It's like they came up with the name of something in math and a math concept, and they're not the same thing. Mathematicians are super pedantic about that sort of thing. I'm a mathematician. I agree with them. <laughs> I mean, you're a physician. You're you're a physicist. I mean, so our levels of math are different. But I mean, yeah. th- th- that's a matter of education. And but I I teach the triangle inequality theorem, saying, and this is why we can say that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. The triangle inequality theorem illustrates that. Yeah, it illustrates, but it does. It's not specifically that. I mean, yeah, I did two Correct. physics degrees. I did. In the course of those physics degrees, I took all the degrees you need to take to to get a math degree. I actually crunched the numbers once. I could have gone to universe, gone back for another uh, semester of university because I had enough extra credits from extra courses I'd taken. Enrolled as a film studies major so I could take the non-introductory film studies courses. Done an entire semester of film studies and then walked out with a math degree. Because I had all the course requirements met, I just needed more credits. No, I wasn't saying you're a physicist, therefore you're not a mathematician. I was saying you're a physicist, therefore you've had a lot more math than I've had. Yeah, because it's... I've, I've done a lot of the other stuff too, but it's... Yeah. Right. It's just one of those super, super pedantic things. And I'm pedantic enough that I bothered a lot of the math majors who were in classes with me. So... I just remember the feeling I had as a middle school math teacher, being in a room with other middle school math teachers, and realizing that some middle school math teachers aren't mathematicians... And being very sad. Yeah, that's the the best man of my upcoming wedding and I got to be friends because we were in a class of 200 people and another class of 60 people. And sometimes when math and science came up, when either one of us contributed to the math conversation, the other one was the only person who could continue to follow that conversation. <laughs> right. So now just uh, going through and just cleaning out a couple other notes. I I like the way Ben Affleck plays Batman. Especially this Batman who is late in his career. He is a somewhat broken human being. And the question is, there's evidence to support the idea that he was already broken before the Metropolis attack Mm -hmm. with the the Robin suit. It's not conclusive, but we know he is a broken man when this, or broken Batman, when the major events in this story start. And that's how Lex manipulates him. But he's just so far gone. We're talking about a Batman who is the world's greatest detective. And yet when he cracks Lex's drive and sees the information Lex has gathered on these supers, he doesn't twig that there's nothing there about himself or Superman. Now, you could leave Batman out because he's not technically super, but why is there no Superman data on this drive? Right. The, the turn that we get where Batman and Superman reconcile at Martha's name because they have that in common they both have mothers named martha i get that it's supposed to remind batman of the humanity and i've seen people say that but batman already knew superman had parents seconds before this when he's dragging him on the floor he's saying i bet your parents told you you were special that you were here for a reason in a a reference to the richard donner superman but he's acknowledging superman had parents and i just would have liked to have seen a chink in the armor before that point because he's so single-minded See him go through the drive and go, why is there nothing here on Superman? Right. See him just recognize that things don't add up with the information he has in front of him. 
so that, you know, when he hears Martha, if that's enough of a chink in the armor to make him stop and listen, and Superman says, Lex has been manipulating both of us, then I'd see him backing down because he put the rest of the pieces together. But up to that point, there's been no sign that this Batman recognizes that there is a puzzle with pieces that need to be put together. I would have liked to have just seen a moment of hesitation, especially in that drive, because the fact that it's only those, you could say for story reasons, is because Lex planted that just so Bruce Wayne would be able to steal just the information on those guys. I wonder if that was a conscious decision or if it was just, no, here's the guys that we're going to throw you a little bit of breadcrumbs about to set up the upcoming Justice League film. Right? It, it feels almost out of place. The, the Justice League elements in this film do feel a little bit at odds with the rest of the film. They do definitely serve to set up the the Justice League film that we didn't get. And the, the, the Nightmare Dream, I think, is another good example with Flash coming out and saying a whole bunch of stuff that at, a bit, at, the, at the end of the day now has no meaning. Well, it, they may still they have the potential to come back to that because when they yeah. announced it, they also announced a Justice League 2. They did. Years ago, they did announce that. They've yeah. said nothing since then. <laughs> no, I'm... I mean, if, 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 if Zack Snyder gets a chance to follow up on his story and do more of his plot elements and his story beats that didn't get made, I'm all for it. But I have zero hope that's going to happen. Yeah, well, we still may have some, because even though I mean, Justice League wasn't wholly Snyder's, we still had Steppenwolf, and they were really setting up Darkseid and Apocalypse here. Yeah, but I, 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 they, they could. I have zero hope it's going to happen. Okay. The, the movie they made has Steppenwolf in it because that was the movie that existed. I don't think they're going to follow up on it. I don't think we have yeah. it. I mean, certainly the DC and Warner Brothers Studios have given us no indication that there's any more coming since Justice League came out a year ago. Yeah, I, I feel that they've, they've added forks to the road. I don't know that they've committed to going one way or the other. It may depend on how the solo films for Aquaman and The Flash and those play out. So I'm I'm just saying don't give up hope, but I'm not guaranteeing you're going to get it either. Yeah, uh, it's it's off the table for me until they say something. The moment there, I did not read as Batman cluing in the fact that, oh my gosh, this guy has parents. Yeah, that, that's not the way I read it at all. That's just the justification I've seen from people online. No. I heard the speaking of the actual name as being a PTSD trigger, as being a, and that may be too strong of a phrase, but as being a moment that reaches down deep into his psychology. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I should get into my whole thing with this moment, but okay. So when I was 16, my three of my family members were killed. Um, my little sister, Charlie, and um, my stepmother, my father. And, of course, it was, it was a huge deal. I was 16, and um, my dad had killed two members of my family and himself. And at the time, my sister was the only girl I'd ever known of to be named Charlie. And since then, I've run across a few in stories um such as heroes from oh gosh it's gonna be like 12 years ago now and 
other places. And every time I, I, I come across a female person, usually character named Charlie, I key in on that because that's just something that stands out in my mind. Crazy thing is, is that the vast majority of them all die in their stories, which is really weird that in my life, um, that girls named Charlie die. So, you know, names of people that we've lost are, are triggers, are trigger, um, events when we hear them. And I think that if I were in the middle of anything, if I were in, if I were walking down the street, if I were teaching class, if I were in the middle of some really emotional situation or a completely non-emotional situation, regardless of, you know, any event along the spectrum of human experience, if someone walked up to me and said, we have to go save Charlie, I would freak out. Why is this person saying this? What does this mean? What are they talking about? There's only one possible context this could mean. Please stop and explain yourself. Because otherwise, you're saying something that is penetrating me to my core, and you've got to have a good reason. And so, whenever Batman and Superman are fighting, and Batman is caught up in his hate, and Superman says, save Martha. I don't think it's, oh, he's a human being. He has parents too. He has a mother that loves him. I think it's a complete WTF, stop him in his tracks. He has no clue how to respond except to stop and demand an explanation. And it's at that point that Lois comes in and says, it's his mother's name. And we get more explanation. And finally, Batman is thrown so hard that he is actually able to hear what Superman is saying. Because back there on the roof with the shock blasts, whenever Batman, whenever Superman was saying, we're being manipulated, we need to talk, Batman wasn't listening. Batman didn't care. And Superman knew he didn't care. That's why he threw him against the wall to try to get him to listen. But here, Batman is finally able to hear because he has just been shattered to his core by hearing his mother's name said, and that we have to go save him. Batman did not hear Superman say, we have to save my mom. Batman heard Superman say, we have to save your mom. And only the conversation that came after that helped to clarify things. Bruce Wayne calmed down and was able to operate and function again. They're not even friends at that point. Batman just no longer wants to kill him. They're barely friends after he dies. Batman just decides to operate because he realizes everything he knew, everything he thought about Superman was a mistake. And he's going to try to honor and make up for those mistakes with Superman's death. There's never a point where Batman and Superman become friends in this film. They just are able to work together because Batman's no longer acting completely irrationally. So, um, needless to say, when I came out of that movie, and I saw the insane, insane levels of mockery and disrespect and complete bu butchery of what to me is the entire emotional linchpin of the conflict between Batman and Superman, full of pain 
and suffering, whenever that was thrown in the gutter and trampled, is when I realized that there is no way to have a rational conversation about this film with someone who doesn't appreciate it because people just want to go see superheroes fight and get jokes. And I realized that that's not a fair position to take. And certainly you and I have had a great discussion about the film that I think has been, you know, mutually respectful. But at the time, and the internet backed me up on this for, for years, you can't talk about Batman vs. Superman online. You can't talk about Batman vs. Superman with, with someone who doesn't, who doesn't like it because there's no rationality there. And I don't know if it's just, and I, I'm, I'm rambling now, but I don't know if it's just that not enough people have hurt in ways that Snyder is trying to reach in this film. Because if you haven't hurt the way that Batman hurts in this movie, then maybe you can't get it. Maybe it's just impossible to understand. I'm done. I'm sorry. No, no apologies. That's, that is definitely a valid perspective and one that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I haven't been through anything close to what you've been through. When I have lost people, it has never really been sudden. Right? It, that when I've lost people who really matter to me, for the most part, it's been as a result of serious illness or something else. So I've, I've had time to prepare myself for the loss in most of these cases. And, you know, you don't expect cancer to have a reason, right? It's not like what you went through. You know, the people I've lost, I have never lost because a human being decided to take them away. And yeah, that that's not a kind of hurt I can connect with. I mean, on a rational level, I can only see that as devastating. On an emotional level, I I have no framework on which to predict what that would do to someone years or decades down the road and how that could trigger them. So that moment didn't completely work for me in theaters, but hearing your perspective and knowing your background I'm not going to say that's because of a problem in filmmaking. It's just that I'll, I will, I'm perfectly willing to say that's a moment I don't connect to because I'm lacking that shared experience. I appreciate that. Um, it's, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's a good time to actually explain, because one of the points we usually do is talk about why this movie was chosen for this podcast. And this came out because this is a movie that warrants discussion and it's not all good it's not all bad but the current tone of social media in general about anything movies politics it feels like people have to treat it as either the greatest or worst thing ever and there's no middle ground and i had the same experience as someone who found the film ultimately dissatisfying trying to have a conversation with some people who liked it, there was no rational conversation on that end either. This is an incredibly divisive film. But I know people have heard you and I podcasting together if they've listened to all of our stuff. And between that and our interactions on social media, I felt that I could trust you to have a rational and reasonable conversation about the pros and cons of this movie and why it works or doesn't work for us. And that's a perfectly legitimate conversation that I haven't seen happen anywhere. So after hearing your Avengers Infinity War discussion on Make My Marvel, 
where you guys were talking about other movies you may do this for, this is a, a movie that you threw out as something that you'd like to have a rational discussion about. So that's when I reached out to you and said, hey, whether it's on your show or mine, I'd like to have that discussion about both this and the Josh Trang Fantastic Four you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Because that's another one that did not work for me. And in Make Ours Marvel, you've specifically said that you found at least large parts of it work for you. Maybe not the whole thing, but yeah. So I, you know, I reached out to you and it, I think you get, you basically decided that the Make Ours Marvel wouldn't really be the appropriate home for a DC based conversation. Yeah, at least not at this point. Yeah, so that's why we're doing it here. And then, yeah, we haven't had any further discussion about Trank's Fantastic Four. So, listeners, that's it sounds like that's a conversation that at least John will be having. The The question is where and when. Yeah, my co-host over at Make Ours Marvel hasn't seen that film yet. And I'm going to actually, as a recording, I'm going to be recording with him tonight. So we're going to talk then about when and where we might be able to talk about that. But I will definitely throw out the idea of having a third party on the conversation. His schedule is kind of tight, though. We basically have one slot during the week that we can record because he, uh, he's either working or he has family obligations. So, um, okay. but, but you know, if, if we can work in a three-way on that, I'm definitely going to do that. Okay. Yeah, because there are things that yeah, I have to say about that as well. Because, again, some moments work, others don't. But. Yeah, I'm definitely open to that if the schedules can work out. So, all right, so listeners can, well, you should be listening to Make Ours Marvel anyway, because it, it's a great concept. Well, it's funny because it actually came out of a conversation of doing other podcasting ideas that I have since come to realize that I don't actually want to do. I only feel like I want to do them. And I'll go ahead and spoil it. We were talking about doing a um, combination of Doctor Who and Star Trek, like, sh uh, segregated coverage of course but like going through and covering all of the media tie-in stuff too like all the novels and comics and that sort of thing but then i realized that so much of the early material of star trek and doctor who just isn't enough of a, an enjoyment factor for me to actually podcast about it but we were talking about doing it and we were like okay let's do this and i was like hey, you know what i'm gonna do while we're while we're doing that I'm going to read through, I'm going to finally read through all of the Marvel comics that were coming out at the same time. And he's like, hey, I like Marvel comics. And they're a lot easier to cover because they're just like right in order. You just go in the order they came out. And I was like, well, yeah, if, if you want to, because I would love to podcast about Marvel comics. And so we did decide to do that. So um, we started at Fantastic Four number one. And we cover as many comics as we can in an hour, which tends to average about two or three comics mm -hmm. per episode. So we're not going at lightning speed by any stretch of the imagination, but we are just kind of covering and talking about the the comics. And if we don't enjoy the comic that much, we don't spend as much time talking about it because we don't want to just sit there and trash it. But we've been talking about uh, who all the Ant-Man and Thor and the Human Torches solo series, which if you don't know... Uh, exist in the 60s. That was a thing whenever they thought the Human Torch was could be as good as Superboy. We've just recently, in our recording sessions, just recently gotten into the Amazing Spider-Man series and the Iron Man adventures. Uh, we're about to start talking about Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. 
And the idea is just to cover every Marvel Universe comic. Now, the completist out there will immediately think, oh, but what about all those comics that were eventually brought in? Like Patsy Walker and, and the, you know, the early appearances of Groot and all that stuff. And our decision on that has been that when we get to the point where those elements become Marvel Universe, then we may go back and talk briefly about what came before. But as far as we're concerned, it's core Marvel Universe, and that's at makehoursmarvel.com. It's been coming out every Friday. We have like 20 episodes recorded. I think seven or eight are out. We record them faster than we uh, release them, so the show's going to be out for a really long time. Uh, at this, even at even at this point, if we just stopped recording and released everything that's that's been done, there are months of material still to come. So I would like this to be finally a, a show that I can do long term, because I love this era of comics. Sixties Marvel is is really fun, even when it's bad. It's still fun. Definitely go subscribe to that. And John, I want to thank you for taking me up on that offer and coming in and having this conversation because I, it is really good to have a rational and reasonable conversation hearing from from the other side on this movie. And that's not an opportunity I've had to this point. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really, really appreciated it. Um, I know it got emotional there a few times. So, But yeah, hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this. Come check out my show, Make Ours Marvel. You can follow me on Twitter at John Reads Comics, no H. And um, yeah, thank you very much, Blaine. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you can email the show at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. There are a few DC movies that I've never discussed that would not be a part of our Makers Marvel purview at this point. If you want me to see if I could talk John into coming back for them, let me know. Thank you for listening. <laughs>